Welcome to First Christian Church. It's very good to see you here in the West Auditorium. Got a lot of folk joining us in the East Auditorium. I was just over there. Welcome again to everyone over there here at First Christian. And then a lot of people are joining us online today. As a matter of fact, can I tell you, last night in the worship service, somebody sent me a photo from New Zealand of them watching the, the, the service last night. So it was like it texted me, or it came via a number of texts and finally arrived as the service was ending. And it had my picture on their screen, watching and participating in worship in New Zealand. Does it get any better than that? That's cool. So to all of you online, wherever you are, welcome, welcome. It's good to have you all here. Would you take your Bible, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you are online with us, there's a tab there you can t uh, click on with your computer, and you'll get to Matthew 5. If you're in the auditoriums, maybe there's Bibles in the pew racks, or maybe you could find Matthew 5 on your smartphone. If we've not met before, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and... Um, I'm looking forward to spending some time with you today in Scripture. Before we get to that, though, I do need to just kind of ask for your help about a, about a matter. Uh, Christmas is coming, and we like to decorate the building, and so we're asking for an all-hands-on-deck next Sunday afternoon. Not this week, but next Sunday afternoon. If you'll go out to the church's website and then click on the What's Happening button, We'd love for you to join us. We'll, if you'll register, we'll, we'll, we'll buy you lunch. How's that? We're making lunch. You can join us for lunch next Sunday afternoon right after the 11 o'clock, the 10.30 service, pardon me. So about 11.30, 12, we'll have lunch. And then we've got various sections of the building assigned and ready to go. And we need steady hands, strong backs, and creative minds. You may not have a steady hand or a creative back, but you've got a very creative mind. Come on, bring it on, all right? So please sign up. We need a number, like dozens of people. So we certainly would appreciate if you consider that, all right? So that's next Sunday afternoon. But for today, the sermon. All right, so maybe uh, you're, you're familiar with uh, a very impressive site in the center of London, England. It's called Trafalgar Square. It's often the meeting place for people who are coming to the city. More than once, maybe you know that Leslie and I worked in Europe for five years. We were based about an hour south of London. And so we would often say to people, hey, we'll meet you in Trafalgar Square at such and such a time. And um, it was always a good meeting place. It's quite a sight to see it. There are fountains. There's, there are these four huge brass lions. And in the very centerpiece of it all is a tall spire that's 169 feet tall. There's a statue at the top of the spire, and that, the fellow standing up there is Lord Horatio, uh, Lord Admiral, I should say, Horatio Nelson. Um, he's dead, in, just in case you didn't know. He died a long time ago, back in 1805 at the Battle of Trafalgar. He was a, a naval um, leader, quite the fellow when he was alive sort of this dashing fellow from the Navy in the days when Britain's Navy was the power source of all its military strength. The public followed his every exploit, 
every battle, every aspect of his career, both public and private. They wanted to know, I mean, the, the British tabloids, are in, which were around, tabloids were around back at the beginning of the 19th century in England, and um, people would be writing about who he, Nelson was fighting, what women he was wooing. They were all chronicled by the media. He was a fighting man. He was a ladies' man. He was an officer who was different than other officers in the British Navy at that time. He, uh, he led from the front rather than the rear. He was a guy who promoted other men on the basis of merit instead of political connections. He had lost an arm in battle, and when people didn't believe that it was really him, he would expose it and wiggle it around like this and say, see my fin, he called it his fin. Um, he had a blatant, just an outright extramarital affair with a diplomat's wife, and um, it was all tabloid gold. And his monument in Trafalgar Square is such a key British emblem that Hitler said, when I take London, the one prize I want to bring back to Berlin is I want to bring that spire and Nelson's figure on the top. I want that back in Berlin. Yet, despite all the things that Nelson did, he died in the middle of the, the uh, Britain's war against Napoleon. He got a musket shot through his left shoulder, and at first, nobody thought much of it because he'd been wounded before, but it actually had gone in and severed his spinal column, and he died. Now, after he died, it took 16 days for the news to reach England. But it was going to be two months before they were going to get his ship, the Victory, back to England. And so for those two months, Britain was in a frenzy. The Times, one of the local papers there, national paper actually, ran daily articles about his demise and the homeward progress of the victory ship, though actually they had no idea where the victory was because they didn't have communications like we have. And yet, it was, it, the public could barely wait for the ship to get home. They wanted to bury his body in London, not at sea. But in 1805, how do you do that? How do you get a body that's going to be, by the time it gets back there, two months old? This is before embalming was basically invented. How did the ship's surgeon get his body back to England without it deteriorating? You want to know the rest of the story, don't you? You want to know how did they do that? What happened to this man's body? Well, I'm going to say you have to wait a moment or two just for that. See, I need to tell you straight up, his story is not really germane to today's sermon. I'm just using it as a way to illustrate to you how stories draw us in. I could just see all of you going like, okay, what happened next? What happened next? That's how stories impact our lives. We've just come through Pastor Brian's sermon series at the movies. He did a great job with that. A sermon series based on stories, telling stories from the vantage point of Hollywood. Those stories draw us in, and we use Scripture to illustrate those stories, or vice versa, I guess you could say. When we hear someone say, let me tell you a story. When we read in the scriptures that it says Jesus told a parable, that he's telling a story, we, we are immediately interested. For example, last weekend, Leslie and I were in California, and you immediately want to go, why? Why were you in California? Just, just that introduction, you go, what happened? Well, I was out there, we went out there, and I, we had the gracious honor of officiating a wedding uh, from a family here in the church, and I want to tell you something that happened while we were out there. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. You want to know, right? It's just this story. That you want to know the story. 
that just that pause, I want to tell you something that happened. What? What happened? It draws in. You want to know more of the details. Well, we were in the foothills of the Southern California Desert Mountains. Bighorn sheep country, they call it. And one morning I said to Les, hey, let's see if we can drive somewhere up into those hills. And the next thing you know, we discovered a two-lane state highway with hairpin bends and turns that required, you know, slowing down to like 15 or 20 miles per hour. And suddenly, within 25 minutes or so, we found ourselves 7,000 feet above sea level. There was a vista beyond belief. And you'll have to ask Leslie about her version of the story. Now, see, there you go. What, what's her version of the story? You'll have to ask her about her version of the story as we came back down. She says, going up is one thing, but, but coming down, I can't look, I can't look. Wayne, keep your eyes on the road. Don't look at anything. Because it's like there's no guardrails, and you look down, and it's going to be like, it's got to be hundreds, if not a thousand feet down below. That brief story of what we did last weekend, which may I add, the weather was spectacular. Not that I'm trying to rub it in, but nonetheless. And we did, here's another story. We got caught in that American Airlines mess. The six-hour flight became 22 hours. You don't want to know about all that, okay? But nonetheless, all those things bring about new chapters in our life. Those chapters are being written every day. And the question we are reviewing in this sermon series is simply this. Given the narrative nature of our lives, who is writing our stories? What influencers cause us to move from chapter to chapter, from chronicle to chronicle, from life stage to life stage? If, we were a, if your, if your um, life was a Hollywood movie, who is directing the story of your movie, or who is writing the script? Now, if those of us who are followers of Jesus here today, I would think we would like to say, Jesus is writing my story. He's the one in charge of me. I choose to live as God directs. And I just want to ask you straight up, how's that going for you? How's it going? Now, Jesus gives us some clues. He gives us some directives in the opening days of his public ministry. Jesus gave clear understanding of how we are, how we are to follow his way of life how to write our stories in ways that reflect divine life values like he would have. And here's what he had to say in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first major address that he gives to the public. He says, um, Matthew's writing, he says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. So this is at the very north end of the Sea of Galilee, literally uh, where, this, where this is given as a hillside, where if you walk down the hill, you hit the water. So he's three or 400 feet maybe up from the water, and he says to his disciples, his opening public statement, his first sermon, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is the way he wants people to live. This is his manifesto, if you will. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Today, I'd like us to focus particularly on verse 5, the verse about meekness and humility, where Jesus has this statement about humility. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness. 
humility. My observation about that these days is that it seems to be a dying art. A dying art in a culture of self-promotion on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok videos. How many followers do you have? I don't know how many followers I got. I think it's about 60 maybe on my, on my, on my Twitter account, which I haven't looked at for years. Humility is not a well-worked virtue in the days of demanding personal rights and self-promotion. It's fair to say, I think we could put it this way, that humility is not overused at present. Is that, is that a good thing, way to put it? Pastor Brian and I were chatting about this uh, recently. He was in a, aware of a setting where the men, all, there was a men's gathering of a, a bunch of guys, and they were encouraged to, does anyone know what your spiritual gift is? And one fellow, the first to answer, jumped to his feet and put his hand up and he said, I know what my greatest spiritual gift is. My greatest spiritual gift is humility. <laughs> and the irony in the room was palpable until the entire audience broke out in laughter and groans. Can you really say, I'm humble and still be humble? So if Jesus is the author of your story, how is the humility part going? Remember, Jesus' way of life is always an upside-down life approach as compared to the non-Jesus way of life. If you're going to follow Jesus, everyone else might do life this way, but Jesus calls us to do things differently. Our culture says, I was in line before you. Don't get in my way. You're not jumping in front of me at the drive-up at McDonald's. I've been observing which line is moving faster. I've made my calculations. <laughs> and I want you to know, I can drive around this building at 45 miles an hour all the way through the parking lot and beat you back here, I promise you. I'm standing my ground. You know, there's an interesting dynamic that I experience with this matter of humility each time we have a meal here at First Christian Church where either a small group or a large group of people are coming. You know what church, how we do it at church. You have a long table and people line up on both sides and, you know, you get your plate, then you get your cutlery and, and, and uh, <laughs> I always said you get your crockery, which is an Australian word for plate. I don't know why that, where that would have come from, but you get your crockery, you get your silverware and off you go. Okay, but nonetheless, you get the idea. And then you go down there and... Um, I always have, in those moments, as the pastor of the church and as somebody who's trying to follow Jesus, I have this mind game going on within me. See if you can get inside my head. I'm aware that Jesus says things like, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will find it. Okay, I can lose my life at this food here. I can, or the last will be first and the first will be last. Guys, if you throw up that slide. Or like, Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Those kinds of things come to mind, particularly the one in the middle. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, Jesus is giving an upside-down life approach. If the first should be last, then that means under most settings involving food, a humble person, since they're proud of their humility, would go last in line, right? And this is in my head space as I'm standing there about to pick up a plate. It's usually my practice. I'll go last. I'll make certain everyone gets a run at the kitchen crews, mashed potatoes and fried chicken and salad and desserts, which are always spectacular. 
And then I'll literally step up to the plate. Now, I know stepping up to the plate is actually a baseball euphemism, but I think it works quite well in those moments. I'm stepping up to the plate. But then, as I'm kind of hanging back, here's what happens. Someone will notice my humility, which seems odd to me. If I'm being humble, how's it being noticed? And they'll say, Pastor, you're the main guy here. You should go first. But in my act of declining, see, I'm just crazy. I'm weird in some of these things. I know. I'm trying to do what Jesus says. Let the first go last and all that sort of stuff. So in my act of declining, this thought runs through my head. I'm trying to be humble to put others first, but now people are noticing that I'm trying to be humble. It seems that my humility is drawing attention to my humility. It's a vicious circle. Are they saying to themselves, oh, look at our pastor, he's so, he's so humble, which actually feels quite contrary to being a person of humility. And if humility is noticed, is it still humility? If I go last in line, is that akin to me asking, have you noticed how humble I am? So I've decided I'm going to go first from now on. Who are we? Are these crazy people? Have all? How, how do we do this humility part without? I know this. I want Jesus to be the author of my story. And he says that if I'm going to follow him, I'm supposed to be a person of humility. I want his life approach as my life approach in the next chapter of my story. I mean, if, I'm, if, if a book is being written about me, there might be a chapter about leadership. There might be a chapter about immigration, all the stuff, the places I've lived. There might be a chapter about my family. But I hope that someone should write a chapter about humility. But if I was really humble, it wouldn't show up in the book at all, would it? Oh, it's crazy stuff. You're the same. So how do we manage this? Well, let, let me see if I can give you some observations that go beyond just choosing to be the last in the line. How could we practice a Jesus-style, upside-down life approach regarding humility? First of all, be certain that we are people who take an attitude, a posture, an outlook of gracious living. Uh, here, here's what I mean. You didn't deserve God's grace in your life, did you? It came without merit on your part. God graciously showed up. In Jesus Christ. Can you extend a similar grace to others even when they don't deserve it? Now, I'm aware that as a human being, and particularly as an American, we each have a civic right to speak into every issue, into every setting, and we can do that passionately and aggressively. That's our right. We see it displayed on social media every day. Is it necessary, though? Here's the question I would ask today. Is it necessary for you to win every social media argument? Is it necessary for you to win every debate within your family, whether it be your immediate family or third, fourth, fifth cousin removed or some friend you've, who's, on your friend, who's on your Facebook feed and you have no idea who they are, but they're listed as a friend and you're going to tell them what for? Do you have to win every squabble about COVID-19? every row about masks versus non-masks, every right versus left, Republican versus Democratic platform and issue. Now, friends, I want to, want to be very clear about something. Paul the Apostle in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, says, stand firm. Stand firm, absolutely. We stand as Christians. We stand against evil, absolutely. 
but I'm choosing this, that I'm not equating my American rights with divine righteousness or assuming that to lose every debate is akin to accepting hell's evil. There is a difference. This American experiment we're all living in is a unique moment in history. The Christian story of upside-down humility, though, transcends, goes beyond our present nation, and it transcends the globe's contemporary squabbles. As Americans, we have certain unalienable rights. Do you remember what they are? The right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. We are endowed with those rights by our Creator, absolutely. But for a Christian, these wonderful rights never supersede Jesus' call of kindness and humility. Gracious living means not only putting others first in line, but at times it might even mean allowing their opinions to sound louder than yours, as painful as it might be. Because it means that humility in our life approach must include another aspect of Jesus' humility. Namely, we serve, we forgive, and we bear others' needs, foibles, and burdens. Isn't that what Jesus did? Think about what happened. The King of Heaven, the Son of God, the Creator of the cosmos, what did He do? He left heaven in order to serve, in order to forgive, and in order to bear. His actions, God's actions, required Humility. We remember this on a regular basis around here at First Christian Church. We have this habit in our congregation that reminds us of Jesus' humility. Right here in the middle of my sermon today, we're going to have communion together. And if you're at home, would you grab something to eat and to drink? Here in the West Auditorium and the East Auditorium, there's some people coming around right now. And we're going to give you a cup if you didn't get one when you came in, all right? And um, some folk are going to get that to you in both auditoriums right now. And as we have communion here in just a moment... I, I want to prepare a little for this in a little bit different way today. I want us to remember Jesus' humility. Yes, we're going to we just sang that glorious song about the blood of Jesus and so forth, but I also want to read, have you read with me a description of Jesus' humility? Because as the Scripture states, we're going to see the Scripture, He is our model. And we're going to read that while this passage of Scripture is a description of Jesus, it's also a directive on how we are to practice humility. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle says, in your relationships, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. So it's not, he just doesn't start with Jesus. This is the model of how we're to live. And then he, he launches into what would be, we'd call a creed, if you will, or it might have even been a hymn in the early church. And I'd like you to read it with me out loud, if you will, please. In both auditoriums, even at home, let's read it together. In your relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus to do what? who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the Jesus who died for us. Read on with me. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what we know. This God who came from heaven, God in the flesh, Jesus, took on humility. And for that, we are truly thankful. He bridged the chasm that sin brought between us and the divine. And as followers of Jesus, scriptures tell us that we are to remember that on a regular basis. So let's pray together. Father, as we participate in what is a regular habit here in the life of our church, we remember that Jesus died for us. Wow. His blood covers our sin. We're so thankful for that. In humility, he came. Thank you for his death on our behalf. In Christ's name, amen. So let's eat and drink together. The Lord Jesus gave his body broken for us. Eat in his remembrance. His blood is the covenant, new covenant. Sins are forgiven. So what have we done? We've just remembered Jesus' death by eating and drinking together. And in light of the scripture we've just read, we've chosen to step into deep humility, I imagine. And we'll do that by choosing to live like he did, to serve, to forgive, and to bear with others. That's what we're invited into. And if we're invited into that, as followers of Jesus Christ, may I suggest we're also invited into something even larger than that, we're invited into this big cosmic story called the kingdom of God. And how do we do that? With humility before Jesus Christ as our king. Here's what I mean. Each week during communion, we focus on Jesus' cross, his death, his victory over sin, his eternal damnation of death. And we legitimately say, man, the cross is the centerpiece of what Christians call the gospel. And we revel in God's gracious gift of forgiveness. We say, Jesus is our Savior. And we love it. And it's, I want to tell you, friends, it's great theology. It is marvelous theology. But there's something missing a little bit. Or I say, maybe I suggest it falls a little short if we stop at the cross. Look again at the passage of Scripture we read together leading into communion. The first paragraph deals with Jesus' substitutionary death at Calvary. Paul says, and if you want to know how to live, in your relationships have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this is how Jesus lived. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant. And with that, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that's, that's, that's great. That's Jesus' substitutionary death. But notice what happens in the next paragraph. That God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you notice in that second paragraph, there's nothing about Jesus as Savior? It's in the first paragraph. But the next paragraph is all about Jesus as King. This humble God-arriving servant to the earth, who came to the earth, after being on the earth, is exalted as Lord, as King. It's all about, the second paragraph is all about Jesus' supremacy over all things. Notice it's in the past tense. He is exalted already. This has already taken place. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And notice that it's not that every, t- every um, tongue will confess sometime in the future. That will happen, yes. But, and, and it's not that we say, okay, every tongue will confess because our sins are forgiven, which I would say, praise be to the Lord. But every tongue will confess because Jesus Christ is Lord and he is exalted to the highest above all names. In other words, Jesus is king. He's not only our savior, but he's our king. And a humble life is a life that not only receives God's gracious gift of the forgiveness of sins, but a humble life also allows Jesus to lead. It's both savior and Lord, forgiver and leader. Is Jesus as king of the cosmos? And king of my life. And suddenly my wants, my wishes, my hopes, my plans, my life approaches, they are all subject to King Jesus. The Son of God is my king. And that has implications. I'm sad to tell you. Or convicted to tell you. Maybe that's a better word. That that has implications on how we drive through the parking lot of McDonald's. I don't want to hear that this week. It has implications about how we approach dinner this week with people at our family tables or wherever we gather. It has implications about our social media posts, and it has implications about our inner life, our inner self-evaluations. Why? Because Jesus is in charge. Our king is our leader. And his way of life dictates our way because he is not only our savior, but he is also our commander-in-chief. He is the Lord. Let's pray together. God, I'm, I'm working this out, Father. Striving to figure out how best to um, acknowledge you not only sent Jesus as my Savior, but also you sent him to be my king. And uh, Jesus was a person of humility. And Lord, um, I pray that I would be reflective of that. And Lord, that prayer that I have, that's echoed in hundreds of mindsets right now. both live now in the rooms and online and maybe even months from now as people catch this later. We, we, we'll work this week to make certain that we are people of humility because we want Jesus to be in charge of our lives. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I would suspect that for some of you here today or some of you online, Maybe this is the uh, 
moment you go, oh man, I've, this is sort of making sense all of a sudden about what it means to follow Jesus. If that's the case, uh, we'd like to have a visit with you. If you're not walking with Jesus yet and you'd like to say, I, I want to I become a follower of Christ. And in other words, the way we would say it theologically, you want to become a Christian. If you'd like to make that decision today or in the days ahead, by all means, grab one of the staff members. We'll be glad to have a chat with you about that. Maybe you'd like to get baptized. Uh, next uh, week, we're gonna, we've already got a number of people who are saying, I want it to be known that I'm a follower of Jesus. And we already have a lot of people planning to get baptized next weekend. So if you have not been baptized, we'd be glad to um, add you to the list. You can go out and call the church office, look on the website, and you'll find out more information about that or talk to us today. And uh, I'd love to see how many of us here today would live our lives differently this week because Jesus is not only our Savior, but also our King. So we're going to worship the Lord together again in both rooms. Would you stand together, please? And as you're standing, two notes that I would like to give you in light of today's sermon. First of all, I, um, I want to thank you for acknowledging my stellar writing and preaching and how preaching on humility is one of my strong suits today. <laughs> Just, <laughs> that's supposed to be funny. Maybe not. All right, number two. Lord Nelson Horatio. Uh, Horatio Nelson, you want to know about him, right? The guy who, who uh, his statue stands over Trafalgar Square, 169 feet in the air. He, um, he died at sea, right? 1805, the Battle of Trafalgar. And uh, the public wanted to know, how are we getting his body back to uh, Great Britain? What's going to happen? Well, when the battle took place, the... Um, the surgeon there was a guy by the name of William Beatty. He was on board the ship, the Victory. And he was aware of the nation's real interest in this man who had died that the nation didn't even know he'd died yet. Didn't know anything about embalming. Didn't know what he was going to do, except it was going to take two months to get from the battle site back to Great Britain. How did he take a body back in those days? The only thing he had on board was that might help him was a lot of alcohol. So he looked around and said, what's the strongest alcohol? What's, what's the, the keg with the strongest alcohol? And it would have to be a keg of sherry. And they opened up the lid and they dropped the fella in. And they let him pickle all the way back <laughs> to London. Now, the British public were of the opinion that he'd been dropped in rum. So after the funeral, and it was a big deal, and after the funeral, the, um, the public mistakenly thought that it was all rum, but it wasn't. It was actually sherry. But from then on, and you can go to pubs in Great Britain today, many pubs, where you can order a spiced rum drink called the Lord Nelson. It's not the original rum. I'm sure I need to tell you that. It's not this. <laughs> you can read it. Go check it out on the web, on, on the web today. And the, again, I'd say, that, is there any, there's nothing germane or spiritual about that whatsoever today. I just, it's a fascinating story. It draws you in, right? Here's what I'm aware of, friends. Your story is being written by God today. And as we worship him in this song right now, both auditoriums online, graciously say, God, what are you calling me into? And I'm going to wait. I'll, I'll be a person of humility waiting to see how you're going to work this out. May God's grace and peace be with you today.